0: And at this time, we'd like to dismiss children to Children's Church. And so uh, children ages K4 through 3rd grade can be dismissed to the Children's Ministry Building. There's actually a worker in the Welcome Center area that will walk them over there and uh, make sure they're transported safely. Parents, if you haven't checked in your children yet, we ask you to do that. uh, Before you send them over there, you can check them in the Welcome Center. They'll help you with all of that. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. And uh, while, while you're turning there, let me take advantage of that time to, uh, to thank those of you who were able to come here yesterday for the celebration of life's service for Shelba McFarland. As her testimony to her life, Shelba uh, was a member of our church and uh, passed away recently at the age of 80. It was very evident that Shelba desired to serve the Lord with all of her heart. She loved the Word of God. Uh, The testimonies were given of stacks of Bibles opened in her house. Uh, She was a widow in her final years here, and she had Bibles all over the house, opened up, loved the Word. And we know today she celebrates in the presence of Jesus, studying the living Word of God, uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Shelba went through uh, some difficult Trials and pain uh, near the end of her life and uh, my heart was encouraged yesterday with 2nd Corinthians 4 verses 16 through 18 and I feel compelled to read that to you as a church to encourage you with Shelba's example It says so we do not lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May Shelba's life and her Lord and this Word encourage you to press on knowing that whatever affliction you bear at this moment, it's light. It's temporary when you compare it to the eternal weight of glory that will be yours in heaven. Genesis chapter 19, I want to preach a sermon to you today entitled The Story of the Human Heart. I think that's a strange title for this text about sin and destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but perhaps if you would go with me through this sermon from beginning to end, you will see that this reveals the wickedness of every human heart. Genesis chapter 18 and 19 belong together. Together, these two chapters portray a true story that takes place in, for the most part, in events that occur within a one-day period. The story starts out in Genesis 18 at the door of the tent of Abraham, uh, underneath the oaks, uh, oak trees at Mamre, and then it moves to a scenic overlook on the way to Sodom. Then, uh, for an evening and a morning, we spend a night and and a morning in the city of Sodom and just outside, and then it concludes in a cave in the following months. Last week, if you were here, we looked at Genesis chapter 18, and we saw an amazing encounter between Abraham and three guests. And I made the point, I believe that one of those guests was uh, an appearance of God himself, and and then two of the other uh, guests who are called men in this text who appear in human form are angelic beings. It all starts out in Abraham's tent or near the door of his tent, and so first, Abraham and Sarah prepare an extravagant meal. You remember, they, they rush around. Abraham commits for the family. Sarah makes a meal. They, they bring it to these two guests. And that's when Sarah hears. She overhears. She's listening at the door of the tent, in, from inside the tent. She overhears that she's going to have a child, a son. And what may seem impossible from a human perspective, a 90-year-old woman... Past the age where she could have children, what, what might seem impossible with man, we learn in this text, uh, is not too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. When the three guests leave the area near Abraham's tent, he walks with one of the guests to a scenic overlook. And he learns from God himself that God is planning to destroy the city of Sodom. So Abraham engages in intercession for the city, and he works God down to the place where God would be willing to rescue the entire city if even there are ten people, righteous people, who live there. But most importantly, as we read that final part of Genesis 18, we learn that God is patient with Abraham. God is merciful. He's, He's not desiring to judge people. But we also learn that he does discriminate between the fate of the righteous and the wicked. And we learn that the judge of the earth will indeed do what is right. This week as we come to Genesis 19, we will discover what God does first in the third geographical location we look at. What he does in Sodom and just outside of the city. And then we'll see what happens in the hills outside of a little city on the plains near Sodom called Zoar. Today as we come to this text, uh, we come to a text that reveals one of the most offensive and ugly looks into the depravity of the human heart. And this is just, in, in many senses today, as we listen to this sermon, as you engage, as you're following along, you're going to see this is just disgusting. This is just utter wickedness. The Bible pulls no punches. It tells us exactly what was going on at this time. And what we're going to find out is that every human heart in this scenario was utterly wicked. Not just the Sodomites, but we're going to learn that Lot himself, his heart was wicked. We're going to learn that the heart of Lot's wife was wicked. We're going to learn that even his daughters, by the end of this text, we're going to learn and see them do something shocking Shameful. We're going to see their wicked as well. The ancient prophet Jeremiah said it quite well in Jeremiah 19, 17 and verse 9. He said this: He said, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If there's ever a more powerful way to, f- to formulate or frame that idea, I, d- I don't know that I've seen it. Uh, Perhaps in one other location where Jesus himself in Mark 7 and verse 21 says this, he says, For from within, that is, out of the heart of men and women, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and murders. So as we look at Genesis chapter 19 and we go through this ancient story, we're going to look at wicked hearts. But we're going to look at these hearts and then we're going to examine our own. And we're going to reflect in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we start in Genesis 19, most of this text will occur in Sodom or just outside the city. And uh, the first part of this text unfolds in five acts. There's a story about Sodom and its destruction in five acts. The story starts with act number one, a simple beginning. Look at verses one through three Okay, so this story starts out okay enough, right? It's Lot sitting in a gate or the gateway of the city. The gate of the city would be a place near the public square of the city where judgments would be given. Legal disputes would be heard where the elders of the city would meet. It would be a cultural center. Now, most preachers, if they've ever preached any sermons on Genesis, they'll point out, and you've probably heard preaching on this before, the progression in Lot's story and his heart. It starts right early on. He notices the well-watered plains that included Sodom and Gomorrah. And so then he pinched or he pinched, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And then later on he moved closer there, and now we see him finally engaged as an active participant in the irregular events of the city of Sodom. Well, from his seat in the gate, Lot notices two guests. Uh, these two guests that were dispatched before, I think they're two angelic beings, and he insists that they join him for the night. They stay with him. We don't know exactly why Lot insisted on this, Perhaps he's just following ancient codes of hospitality or I think there might be something more to it. Although the town square in most cities would be a safer place than living out in the countryside, more desirable, I think Lot knew there was something about the town center at Sodom that was dangerous. And so he presses on these two men He will not wish a night in this town square on anyone, even if they are complete strangers. So he invites them into his house. But from the simple beginning, after preparing a meal from them, the situation quickly turns to a growing crisis in verses 4-9. through This is where the story gets ugly. Verse 4. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter or protection of my roof. But the men of the city said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man-lot and drew near to break the door down. A growing crisis, Act 2. Here's they're preparing for sleep for the night. The text says all the men, all the men of the city, every last one of them, And it makes it quite clear. Every last man of the city gathers around the home of Lot and yells out their command. Their command is simple and straightforward. That's quite sinister. They desire or demand to know the two guests in Lot's home. Some contemporary Christians actually Try to make the case that they just wanted to be hospitable. To become more acquainted with the men. I interacted with the view for a bit until I couldn't handle it anymore. This view was held by Christians who teach that homosexuality is not a sin and that God does not condemn those who practice such things. But the context here reveals it so clearly. It reveals exactly what, these, what the intention of these men's heart was. This is not just a desire to become more acquainted with the two guests. This angry mob of lustful men are demanding to abuse them sexually. We can see this because the same word for the word no is used in the very next verse, in verse 8, when Lot is describing his two daughters. He says, these two daughters have not known any man. Not that they have no acquaintance with other men, it they have not sexually known other men. Not to mention the way the word know is used as a metaphor all throughout Genesis to describe sex or intimacy. The effect of such a scene is clearly indicated it's going to be the case that there's not going to be ten people here in this city to make the Lord spare this town. This is not just a small group of evil men. This is the entire adult male population of the city. All of her citizens. It seems that then that this must have been uh, some sort of normal way to treat guests in Sodom where all of the heterosexual men, all of the bisexual men, all of the homosexual men come out to collectively abuse its visitors. That's when Lot gets involved in the story. And In verses 6 through 9, he offers two different solutions. starts out fairly well when, when first he rises to protect the guest himself. One commentator by the name of Gordon Wenham, I think, describes this well. He says, true to the cardinal principle of oriental hospitality, Lot bravely goes out to face the mob alone. By shutting the door, he cuts off his own escape and he protects those inside of his home. So with the door closed, he he then begs, right, he closes it, Puts everyone in the house. He steps out as a man and he, he begs the inhabitants not to do this. Do not do this evilness. Don't do this wickedness. It's a side comment. I think it's at places like this where we learn that New Testament comment about Lot was indeed true. Where the New Testament described that the sinful deeds of the unrighteous people vexed the soul of Lot. Here he is vexed that the soul would consider such a heinous thing. And to his first solution, his first solution, just stop. Don't do this. To his first solution, he appends another idea, and this one is utterly damning. The first words of verse 8 should never be uttered by any father. Behold. I have two daughters. Here he offers his own daughters to this lustful mob of wicked men. What a sad, damning thing. And at this point in the story, what a disgusting little man Lot is. Men, may that never, ever be the solution. For our families. Did you get that? Never. It would be better, as one commentator said, it would be better to go down fighting. Lot well, started out well by closing the door and putting it behind him, protecting his family behind him, and may that be, men, our, our response to this sort of pressure. May we close the door behind us and determine that the the only way someone gets beyond that door is through my dead body. I cannot even imagine a father who would suggest this and then, if accepted, would open the doors and look his daughters in the eye to give them over to these men. What horrid wickedness. I'm so glad for the sake of these young women that Lot's solution was not received by the mob. Now it's true, it is true, that for Lot to give up, these two men would be to violate all codes of ancient hospitality, but he should have never offered this alternative solution. We must never choose one way of sinning in order to avoid another kind of sin. This leads the uh, men of Sodom, the Sodomites, to rise up against Lot. They remind him that he is an alien and that he has no rights in the city. It's like one of the commentators said. It's like they remind him that uh, they can can take away his green card at any time. And it's even worse than that. They plan to take out their anger against Lot himself. We're going to come get you. And they force their way toward the door to break it down. That's when we get to scene number three. See number three, the angel's intervention, verses 10 through 17. So look there in your Bible, verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons in law sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy the city, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verse 14, So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. lest you be swept away. As part of the passage, the angels get involved. They start by pulling Lot into his house, and they shut the door here in the angel's intervention. And if that phrase, shut the door, sounds familiar in the Bible reading plans as you're going through the book, it's because that word, those words have been used earlier. Members are back in the Noah story, and he's on the ark. It's all been built, and the water's coming, all that. It says that God shut the door of the ark. And that was God's way to deliver and protect Noah. It's kind of an echo of that event in Noah and the ark. It's reappearing here. Here, the angels, they pull them in and they shut the door. Then, the angels strike all the men of the city with blindness. And their blindness is so disorienting that the men of the city cannot even figure out how to get into Lot's home. Now, I want to point out one thing to you that I had never seen or considered before this week in just working through this text. And that is, do you notice how these men, these wicked, lustful men, respond after they're blinded? Where do they go? They're all struck with blindness by the angels. They do not go home. They don't go to recover some other place. They keep going after what their sinful hearts were craving. It says they wore themselves out looking for the door to the home. I think they're like a drug addict who crawls across the floor to get his next hit. Or. A drug addict who takes an old, dirty needle of another person and plunges it into his own arm to appease his addiction. What a wicked city. How could ancient men be so wicked? How could it get so bad? I think later on, the Apostle Paul makes it clear to us in Romans 1 how this happens with men and women. They do not reserve a place for God. They do not want to honor God in their hearts, and so God gives them up. He hands them over, and they spiral downward to worse and worse and worse forms of terror and perversion. This group of men are struggling to appease or satisfy their own sinful flesh, longing for worse and worse forms of sexual vice, including homosexual rape. I want to take a moment uh, before we continue, and I just want to make an application. I want to think about our own country and our own world here for just a time. We are now living in a country where, sadly, there is a growing agenda to normalize homosexuality and lesbianism. We hear this agenda on commercials. We see it. Commercials, like even banking commercials normalizing homosexual relations between men and women. We see this on ads for our favorite restaurants. We see this as uh, I follow baseball and uh, my favorite major league baseball team just recently decided to promote uh, gay pride in our culture. We're told that it's normal and that this is something that all civilized people must recognize and celebrate. So it's not just uh, where we're tolerant of this, but we're to be, have pride or to celebrate it. And if you feel differently than this, you are homophobic. You are a bigot and not loving. But I need to take a moment to gently show you and remind you that the Bible does not just whisper against these sins. It strongly condemns homosexuality. Some of our young people will be going very soon off to college where they will interact with this sort of pressure, going off to workplaces, and you know, because you experience the same sort of pressure. We do not hold the position that homosexuality and lesbianism is wrong uh, because we're afraid or because we're bigots. We should do so in love and kindness because this is what the Bible clearly and simply teaches in both Testaments. So, for instance, I can't imagine a much clearer passage than the one verse found in Leviticus 18 and verse 22. Listen to the Bible. It says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. There simply and clearly in the Old Covenant for Israel. Two chapters later, Leviticus 20 and verse 13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. You're under the Old Covenant with Israel. This brought the death sentence for the Israelite people. You say, well, that's just the Old Covenant. But you go into the New, and the New clearly condemns this sort of sin as well. For instance, Romans 1, verses 26 and 27. Again, just listen to the Bible. It's just clear and straightforward. Romans 1, 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What are dishonorable passions? Again, I don't have to say much more than what the Bible just clearly says here. Shameful acts, men with men, women with women. Or one last text, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. It says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of god and so men and women we hold that homosexuality and lesbianism is wrong but we we hold this because it this is what the bible says we hold it in grace and humility and love for our fellow human beings who are under sin and so i'd even say this today if you're here today and you have not yet identified as a believer in jesus christ you surrendered to forms of sexual sin or vice in some ways that are condemned by the Bible. I, I tell you this, God desires for you to be saved. And he has, he has made a way, just like all of us as sinners can be saved from our sins. He has made a way for you to be sinned through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. You died on the cross so that we could be delivered from our sin. And so as we're looking through this text, I said we're going to get a picture of the sinful depraved hearts of human beings. It starts with Lot, who offers his own daughter up. Lot, Lot's heart was deceitful and desperately wicked, but then it moves to the hearts of the Sodomites, who are so set on this, they're groping at the door, trying to find a way to fulfill their desire. Well, the angel's intervention, though, continues, and it ends with an appeal to Lot to rescue his family. Part of the text is very interesting. I think we can learn some things about Lot and his family here. Uh, he goes to his two sons and future sons in law and he tells them what God is going to do. God's going to destroy the city, and they think he's crazy. Think he's joking. I wonder why they wouldn't believe him. I mean, this is the guy who just offered their engaged partners to the mob. Why would they have no respect for this man? I think he's joking. They don't understand the judgment of God upon sin. And even when it comes time for Lot to go, he lingers and the angels have to physically carry him and his wife and his two daughters out of the city. At this point, we come to act number four in the story. Uh, I would entitle this the fiery judgment. We're going to have to move quickly through portions of this, but Acts uh, act number 4, the fiery judgment. Look at verse 18. And Lot said to them, "Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. So Lot is concerned. I think he doesn't think he can make it to the hills. He said, Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that's what the angels say, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little city. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the habitants of the city, and what grew on the ground, but Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Okay, so we'll move pretty quickly through this text, but as they get to this little city of uh, Zoar, the judgment begins, and just how like in the Noah incident, Just how there God rained down, same word, God rained down floodwaters upon the earth as a form of judgment. Here he rains down on a city again. Here it's not water, of course, or rain. He rains down burning sulfur on the city, consuming all the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah and two other cities outside of them. And everything that grew on the ground, see that? Everything, all the plants were destroyed. And it's all salted, so it could produce nothing like it had before. Before it was so well watered, Lot Lot thought that it looked like the plains, it looked like the Garden of Eden. Now it's all dead and salted. I want to express just a few things about this fiery judgment before we move along. Two things here. First, We do not know if God used some natural cataclysmic event to do this. We don't know for sure. I think it is possible that God brought something like a horrific earthquake at this particular point in time that would break up the ground, shoot molten lava into the air with gases and sulfur up into the air that came raining down on the citizens of the city. Historically, we do have examples of volcanoes, for instance, erupting lava and destroying whole cities. And I think late, much later on, like places like Pompeii, for instance. This text, however, does not tell us how God did this, only that it says twice, the Lord was responsible as the source of this judgment. He may have used other means too, possibly an earthquake or whatever. We don't know but this is the fiery judgment of God that happened. Secondly, I'd also point out that this judgment is used later as a metaphor for those who experience eternal destruction in hellfire. Later on in the book of Jude, near the very end of your Bible, in Jude verse seven, the Bible biblical writer says, "Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire," serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So one of the points in the stories you're reading through the, the fiery judgment of God that comes upon these people is, you know, if we've engaged in sins similar to these, we should heed the words of Scripture when it says, repent, or you will all likewise perish. The final act for all of us unrepentant sinners is God's fiery judgment raining down upon us as well. But finally, with all this terror is happening in Sodom, Lot's wife directly disobeys, and she looks back at the city to her own destruction as well. Here we get a glimpse, just a small glimmer into her heart. And I would say her heart as well was deceitful and desperately wicked. Other New Testament texts would perhaps lead me to the conclusion that she cared too much for the city of Sodom. Her heart was there. She looks back and becomes encrusted in and composed of hardened salt that I think forms from the molten sulfur that was her destruction. Her absence will be greatly felt in the home. And we'll see that at the end of our text. For sake of time, I won't read act number five, a final note. Just point out here that God says it was because of Abraham that he decided to spare Lot. But I want to move to this other passage in the text where there is this conclusion about what becomes of Lot. And so these last events will take place in in the hills in a cave outside the city of Turn or look in your Bible at verse 30, and I'll read through the final verses. It says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. when she lay down or when she arose. As both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. told you, ugly picture. Ugly picture of the human heart. In this passage, daughters of Lot contrive a way to produce children. The situation starts in a cave. There was something about the city of Zoar that had brought fear to Lot. My best guess is he looks around the city of Zoar and he sees some of the same sins happening in the city that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And while he had appealed to go there initially, he's afraid, and so he goes to the caves. Now, living in a cave in Scripture is not a mark of extravagance, but of utter desperation. So once in the cave, however, Lot's daughters obviously inflate their situation, claiming that there's no man left on the face of the earth that can produce children from them. They saw no way out, so they intoxicate their father so much so that he has no idea what is going on. Here we see a glimpse of the wicked hearts of Lot's daughters. Their heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And Lot himself must be in a very bad place at this time to get drunk like this on two consecutive nights with no memory of what happened. By the way, I think this text should warn us of the dangers of drunkenness. This is the second time in Genesis where shameful things occur when one, uh, with one whose brain is, is under the control or influence of alcohol. You must avoid the dangers of drunkenness as well because sometimes it will produce in us lasting consequences that we cannot change. I can tell you stories, by the way, of lives ruined by drunkenness. Imprisonments. Accidental homicides. Illegitimate children. Adulteries. Broken families. Again, our hearts are deceitful. We need to be careful. You say, well, this would never be true of believers that they'd get drunk and do this. Personal experience. Happens time and time again. But out of this absolutely horrible situation, I want to end this way out of this absolutely horrible and terrifying situation, God brings good. You say, where is good in this text? I mean, the two sons that come from this incestuous relationship become the heads of some of the most wicked opponents of Israel. Moab, which in Hebrew literally means from father, and Ben-Ammi, which means from a kinsman or near kinsman, they become the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Where is their goodness or grace in this? Well, from this incestuous union, there do come human beings made in the image of God. God gives life, makes good out of bad. But there is also a future Moabite who appears later on in the Old Testament who then appears in the line of Jesus. Her name is Ruth. So if you follow my logic here, God redeems the situation. Lot and his firstborn daughter produce Moab, and eventually Moab's descendants have a daughter by the name of Ruth. And Ruth eventually becomes part of the line of that brings Jesus Christ into this world. And so into this terrible, horrible situation, eventually we have Jesus. It's just like God, isn't it? To bring good from a terrible situation. There's never cause for us to give up. There's always reason for hope. God can take any situation, whatever it is in your life, no matter what it is, if Ruth came forward from the incest between Lot and his daughters, God can bring good out of this, these events in your life too. Come to Genesis chapter 19. What an edifying text, right? A text about incest. text about homosexual abuse. What horrors. What wickedness. Well, perhaps you failed miserably in some way. And the consequences are too much for you. You heard all about these people whose hearts were wicked, and your own conscience, as you've been sitting here, has been convicting you about your own sin. I end with the words of hope from God who can bring good out of bad. If you would repent and turn to Jesus in His Gospel, He will forgive you, and He will bring good from your life and from your testimony as you serve Him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for this story. I pray, Lord, as we close in reflection here, that You would show us all our need of someone to save us. Lord, we've seen a lot of deceitful and desperately wicked hearts today. Uh, And as we sit and hear these things, Lord, may we we recognize that and know that all of us are sinners. We have all turned aside following after our own things. And so, Lord, if there are people here today who have never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save them from their sins, I pray that they would do that now at their seat. I pray that they would humbly pray to You acknowledging their sin Repenting of that sin and turning to Jesus Christ for salvation from their sin. And then, Lord, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that they would not become too complacent. That they would understand, Lord, that this is the potential of every human heart. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would look to Christ and the Gospel as a source of our own forgiveness our own ministry to others in this world today. In Jesus' name, amen.